Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Mark Keene, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Thank you. It's great to see you, Debbie. It is so nice to have you. And I was so looking forward to this one. I want to start off with the fact that you were in our very, very, very first class of New Deal leaders when we launched this thing in 2010 and 11. And I just wanted to say that it's so fun to finally get to have you on the show and to talk to you about this. We've come a long way since then, haven't we? <laughs> oh, absolutely. And frankly, it doesn't feel like it was, what, 10, 12 years ago because uh, we've had so much fun and Watching all of our new classes every year has just been an incredible opportunity to network, meet great people, be inspired, mm. and how successful our organization has been. It's just been a, it's been a real pleasure to be part of this. Thank you. Well, we've loved having you. And I wanted to just dive right in and start as I think back to when you were first elected in 2010. I believe at the time you were the first Asian-born immigrant and the first Korean-American ever elected to a state-level office in Virginia. And if you fast forward to 2021, you've just co-founded the General Assembly's first Asian-American Pacific Islander Caucus. That is some change. And I'm wondering kind of how you have seen the membership of the legislature change over your 10 years there. Yeah, well, thank you. First of all, I was elected in uh, 2009 because Virginia has our crazy state elections in odd years instead of even years. So my first session in the General Assembly was in January of 2010. And you're right, at the time, there was another Asian American that was elected the same year as me. He was a Filipino-American Republican Hmm. from Hampton Roads, but he was a third-generation American, whereas I'm a first-generation immigrant. And so the two of us became pretty good friends. And we used to joke that anytime we ran into each other in the hallway, there was an Asian caucus. (laughs) (laughs) But because he was a Republican and I'm a Democrat, we didn't necessarily find a lot of policy issues that we agreed on. And so we didn't necessarily feel that we had to form some kind of a caucus, even though there were only two of us, literally out of 140 members. And then he unfortunately lost a re-election a couple of terms later. And then around, I guess, six or eight years ago, we had another person that joined us, another Filipino-American woman, and then a Vietnamese-American woman, and a Indian-American man from Loudoun County. And then just last year, just recently, a Korean-American woman. And along the way, we also had our first Asian-American senator, who is a woman. We used to have Bobby Scott, who's our congressman. He's a quarter Filipino, so he self-identifies at least partly uh, as Asian-American. But he was in the state house and state senate years ago. But we also have an Asian-American woman. So with the six of us having our heritage or ancestry in Asia, we felt that the timing was good for us to actually coordinate and work together. And the fact that we all have to be Democrats made it easier in terms of the policy issues that we care about, the progressive agenda. But the thing, frankly, and and sadly, the thing that really brought us together and galvanized our need to speak out and be more of a voice for the Asian American Pacific Islander community is, as you know, about a year ago or so after COVID became such a a rampant problem for all of us, 
and with former president, you know, calling it the China flu and, and just, you know, ethnicizing the issue and making the virus into some kind of a foreign disease that's coming from another country to hurt us. He made it sound as if it was the Asians' fault and that Asians and or Asian Americans are to be held accountable for this global pandemic, which is obviously clearly just a ridiculous concept. But because of his vitriol and the way he has just divided Americans for so long, that unfortunately led to a very, very high spike in anti-Asian violence, Mm. literally murders of Asian American women about a year ago in Atlanta, Georgia. And you're seeing it every single day in New York City, especially Asian American women. They're just targeted for just complete random violence, just brutal attacks. Uh, We've had women being pushed into the subways, murdered in cold blood. And so clearly we can't point to a a motive to say this is all driven 100% by anti-Asian hate. But it's clear that when you see this many incidents happening at the same time, we felt that it was time for us to really speak out and make sure most Americans who are not familiar with Asian Americans would be more familiar with who we are as people. And, And as state lawmakers, we felt an added obligation and responsibility to make sure that our colleagues in the General Assembly, as well as statewide, all of our policymakers understand our community better. So that's why we formalize an actual uh, caucus. That's so wonderful. And I mean, it is so just distressing what's been going on with Asian Americans. I mean, really just in also, it feels like every time there's something else happens right now, we've got Russian Americans being targeted for discrimination because of what's happening in the Ukraine. It, it is so sad to see. Has the caucus it kind of expanded its scope and the kind of, that's you said, galvanized you? Have you been able to work on other issues as well? Yes. In fact, uh, this year I was very proud of it. I was elected chair, I think only because I'm the oldest guy, <laughs> but I was elected chair of the caucus. And the six of us put in about a dozen bills that are specific to Asian American Pacific Islander type of issues and civil rights, hate crimes, language assistance, making sure that we have more teachers that understand English as second language type programs. And one of the other areas that we focus on is because of the Afghan, and we're talking about things like what's going on in Russia versus Ukraine and the aftermath of that. As you know, after we pulled out of Afghanistan last August, we had a tremendous amount of refugees that yeah. came to the United States. And Virginia has always been a state that accepted refugees back to the Vietnam War and even before. And so Virginia has always had a, uh, a welcoming, open process for allowing refugees to come. So when Afghanistan refugees were coming out, we welcomed them. And when they arrived, we wanted to obviously make sure that they found a comfortable home and jobs and what have you. But more importantly, we wanted to ask them for help contribute to our Commonwealth. So one of my colleagues came up with this great idea that we have a teacher shortage. I mean, we have nurse shortage. We have all kinds of labor shortages everywhere. But in particular with teachers, there were some Afghan refugees that were credentialed and licensed to teach in their home countries. And yet, because of our laws, we weren't allowed to use that foreign license credentialing immediately. And so we changed the law this year and the law just, we're going through it as we speak, the law is going to now allow for qualified teachers of certain license and accreditation can then have an easier way of becoming teachers in Virginia to fill that shortage and also give them a chance to work in Virginia, which is, you know, the whole point is to make sure that refugees are contributing to our community as well as us contributing back to them. So that was an idea that our caucus came up with and it's going to become law in Virginia. So I felt that about half of the bills that we put in this year are going to become law. We also have some budget funding items for language assistance that we're waiting for the governor to sign. So I felt good that we were able to incorporate our community's needs and our priorities into the mainstream conversation about what Virginia needs. And frankly, you know, being a person of ethnic background, I think all of us really aspire to that. We're not asking for special treatment. We're not asking us to be 
singled out and treated differently because of our race or our gender, or frankly, or sexual identity or religion or any other category that you might try to divide us with. All we're saying is treat us as equal partners. And to the extent that the laws are not equitable, because you know some of us have been here less, or some of us have language assistance, or some uh, obviously people, uh, African-Americans who have a horrible tragic in slavery history, we want to make sure that we remedy the wrongs and give them an opportunity to come back in a way that those communities come back in a way where our society does have that equitable result. And so for Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, which is the fastest growing community in America right now, as well as in Virginia, but it's the fastest growing community, we want to ensure that our states and our uh, private sector are as welcoming and inclusive of them. And so in that context, we're looking for ways to make sure that our state laws are as uh, equitable as possible. Yeah, that's so wonderful. I love that legislation. I hope other people are listening and will copy that on the teacher certification. It just seems like it should not be so burdensome to be able to transfer those skills. And like you said, become contributing members of society right away. You mentioned how successful the caucus has been. I also want to just shout out that you've been incredibly productive and effective as a legislator. You've authored more than 200 bills and had, I think, about 120 of those or so signed into law. And interestingly, both by Democratic and Republican governors, when you were serving in legislature in Democratic majorities and Democratic minorities. I'm curious, looking back at that, how it is when you're in a different place, whether you're in the majority or the minority, what kind of strategies you've used to be successful, depending on the makeup of the body? Yeah, well, first of all, it's been a tremendous honor to serve in the General Assembly, and being a state legislator gives you a chance to work on a whole variety of issues. I mean, I I have lots of friends who are school board members or city council members or mayors. Of course, we have many friends in the national politics as well. I think the state level is a good balance for me in terms of my interest areas, because I've worked in national politics. I remember I used to work for Senator Dick Durbin. I've spent time in the Clinton administration as well. The federal level the issues are really exciting and it's broad and it's, you know, life and death, war and peace. I mean, you're talking you know, tremendous issues, but you don't feel the sense that you're making a difference immediately because change happens so slowly. And the instrument of government is so big and so bureaucratic that sometimes you feel like I'm working really hard, but I'm not sure if I'm seeing any results. And then on the other end of the spectrum, whether it's city council or, or mayor or school board, you're limited in somewhat in terms of the issues that you care about and you do work with because it's local jurisdiction is smaller in size. At the state level, you pretty much have everything. As you know, the, the 10th Amendment of the Constitution says all of the powers that are not codified in the Constitution at the federal level are given back to the rights of the states. And so we basically deal with everything. And so what I like about my job is I have a chance to work on a very wide variety of issues. And to the extent that I've become specialized in, in a few areas like you know, clean energy and climate change issues or some of the transportation work that I've done or education work I've done, it gives you the chance to really dig in, find people, stakeholders, both inside and outside of government who care about these issues. And throughout the year, we work on policies together. So even though the General Assembly only meets two months a year, the rest of the 10 months, we're constantly working on ideas. And frankly, I've stolen a lot of good ideas from my colleagues in the New Deal. I mean, the, the whole idea of New Deal is to share good ideas, best practices, inspire each other to do better so that our states and our federal governments and everybody else in between can do the best we can. And so what I've tried to do is the whole idea of legislation and policymaking is that you're solving problems, right? You don't do this as an academic exercise. You don't come up with some, my gosh, the world would be wonderful if we, it was like this. You don't legislate a concept. You don't legislate hopes and dreams, which legislate is solutions to problems that people are facing. And so 
I love to hear from constituents and I'll talk to them all the time. I, I go to dozens and dozens and dozens of meetings and events throughout the year while well, we used to until COVID, of course. But you know, even virtually, I still talk to a lot of groups. And when I hear about problems that they're having, I'll say, if there's a state angle to this, if there's something I can fix at the state level, I'd like to give it a try. So just to, for example, this session, I put in about 20 odd bills and about nine or 10 are going to become law. And several of them came from constituents who had problems. And we just worked on it. We looked at it, talked to the stakeholders, talked to my colleagues, and I'll explain, here's a problem that we're trying to solve. Here's what the current law is. This is how we should change the law so that we can allow these people to have the relief that they're looking for. And sometimes it'll cost money, sometimes it won't, but you'll find ways to, you know, if it costs money, then you'll find ways to come up with the funding. And then you find people that agree with the idea that the problem, there's, there should be a solution. And then when you get those folks together, you just push through the legislative agenda. And then once the governor signs it, it becomes law. So I've done that now over and over and over again. And it's just the most satisfying thing when you know that somebody asked you for help. And as their state representative, I was able to change the state laws and policies so that the help that they were seeking is now delivered to them. And so you just don't get that at the federal level as much as immediately as you can at the state level. Yeah, I love that whole explanation. Thank you for that. I do think that you know a lot of our listeners are people who are, might aspire to be in politics at some point or thinking about running. And what a great summary about how this works and, and really the impact that you can have hearing directly from your constituents and then being able to make that change. I do want to dive in on one topic. You, you kind of mentioned it as, as one of your priorities, and you've done a lot, as you said, on health, on schools, on a number of things, but you really have made yourself a national leader on climate in particular. And I know the author of the Virginia Environmental Justice Act and the Solar Freedom Act, spearhead legislative efforts on green jobs and incentivizing energy efficiencies, particularly around electric school buses. Why is that so important to you? How is it going? Do you have any hope that as a country, we're going to make the changes we need to make to get where we need to go? Well, first of all, I think, I mean, all the issues that we work on, whether we're in national office or state or local offices, everything is important. And clearly there are people that will be hurt or benefit based on the work that we do. And so I don't think that we can ever say one issue is more important than another, especially because everybody has different interests. But what I'll say, though, about the climate agenda and the reason why I'm so focused on making sure that we're weaning ourselves off of fossil fuel and, and carbon emitting products to a world where renewable and alternative fuels can be the, our main source of energy. The reason why I care about that a lot is because it's the one thing that, frankly, if we don't do something about it, everybody will be harmed by it. You know, if we have great schools in Virginia, that's wonderful. But if you have bad schools in Alabama, that's not good. But you have equitable and or inequities based on where you live. Some people are wealthy, so their taxes might be a little bit higher. Some people are poor, so they need government support. And so everybody's treated differently. But the climate is the one thing, whether you live in Alabama or Virginia or poor or rich or whatever your background might be, we're on the same planet. And as the old saying goes, there is no planet B. And so we have to do everything we can to keep this home the greenest and the cleanest it can be. And so I've come to a realization that the most important work I can do, and frankly, all of us can do as citizens as well as legislators, is to do our part to make sure that the climate is not more warmer and more dirty and more polluted and more harmful. And so over the last 12, 13 years, I've put in, I don't know how many bills I've put in, but I've been able to pass quite a few bills that I feel has really made a difference in Virginia. For example, the Environmental Justice Act is something that I just assumed that we had it, you know, when I first started. And I used to practice environmental law many, many years ago, and I've done some work on environmental justice in, the, in my previous career. So I just assumed that we had that. 
But the more I learned about it, the more I realized, you know what? We don't have a an environmental justice act, like a comprehensive one. We have bits and pieces of you know, local planning, you know, outreach and such. But And the reason why I was driven to look at that was we had some of these massive uh, methane you know, gas pipelines that were proposed throughout Virginia. In fact, it's a very hot topic now, given what's happening in the Ukraine and the, and the Russian uh, Nord Stream 2 pipelines. But we had a pipeline that was planned to go into Virginia, coming from Western Pennsylvania all the way down to North Carolina. And obviously not a coincidence, but just so ironic how the most pollutant, the, the uh, emissions, gas, and power, the parts that are actually the most polluting part of that pipeline are located, one, in a Native American area, two, in a very poor Appalachian area, three, in an African-American area, mm. four, in an area that already has all kinds of other pollutants as well. And yet it goes through several hundred miles, those dates, and the engine parts, the the parts that are actually doing the cleaning and the pushing of the, the chemicals are located only in those areas. So that clearly tells you that our big corporations that are looking to build these things are looking for the easiest and the cheapest way for them to locate the most harmful parts. And that unfortunately always harms people of color or vulnerable people or low income or lesser educated people. And so environmental justice goes hand in hand with our climate agenda, which is in order for us to protect the climate, we've got to start by helping the people who harm, harm the most with carbon and, and health emissions. So from there, you know, we've also spent a lot of time in Virginia over the last few years and moving us into a renewable state. And one thing that we have that we're very, very happy about and proud of is the wonderful coastline. You know, Virginia has this beautiful coastline, Virginia Beach, and our ports are amazing and it's a tremendous uh, part of our economic engine. But we also have never taken advantage of the coastline for energy, offshore wind in particular. I passed a bill to ban offshore drilling a couple of years back, but in terms of offshore wind, we've never explored that. Now, technology wasn't there for a long time, but now we do have technology. And so I went to talk to folks in Colorado, which is really strong on wind, and Texas as well. I met with state legislators there and, and other places. And we came back with some ideas for how do we create a, an offshore wind industry in Virginia. And we are now the first state in the country as far as the East Coast that is really investing heavily into offshore wind. So that's another area that we've built. You know, we're making a difference. So bottom line is, for me, climate is... Above all the other issues, the one that has the most urgency and the one that has the widest and the broadest impact. I do want to sneak in one political question because basically, of course, you mentioned the off-year cycle that Virginia is on. So you were one of only two states that have a gubernatorial race last year. All eyes were on Virginia last November to see what would happen. And of course, now Governor Youngkin beat Terry McAuliffe. And I'm sure you get asked this question a lot, but I think there's a question of what should we take from that? Of course, we're already in a different place now than we were in November, frankly, let alone where we'll be from now to next November. But do you have any lessons or takeaways from that race that you would want to share with national Democrats about going to the midterms? Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, we're disappointed. I was on that ballot. And so um, even though I won 70-30 with my Republican opponent in the same district, a lot of my Republican and some Democrats voted for the Republican governor. As a result, he won by two points over Terry McAuliffe. And so we're we're disappointed about that. Even though I won, my house is now flipped from Democratic majority to Democratic minorities. I'm back in the minority caucus again. So clearly that wasn't a, a good night for us. But I think there are local lessons that we learned, just Virginia specific, because you know we're so unique in terms of our, our political history. And then national uh, lessons that we should learn. And I, and I hope that our friends in Washington and other places will really understand it. Just on the local thing, just really quickly, Virginia has had this weird trend since 1976, since Jimmy Carter was elected president. Every year since Jimmy Carter was president, whenever we had our governor's race a year after the presidential election, 
the party that just won the White House loses a governor's race. That's just been a trend. And it makes complete sense if you think about it, right? You have a president that gets elected and then there's this honeymoon period. Everybody loves him. Him, unfortunately, until now. Everybody loves him. And then a few months later, they start souring on him saying, wait a minute, he didn't, he's not doing everything that he promised or you know, the economy's not as strong or what have you. And so once the honeymoon period is over, they start having the buyer's remorse saying, oh, I'm not sure if you made the right decision. The president's approval rates goes down. And the very next opportunity for them to express their frustration at that party is Virginia governor's race. And we just happen to be so close to Washington, D.C. that the Washington pundits and the consultants and the lobbyists and the staffers who are involved in national politics who really are frustrated that what's going on in Washington take it out in Virginia, as opposed to New Jersey, which is the other state that's a little bit further away from us. As a result, I call it the buyer's remorse elections every, every governor's race. The only time that trend did not take place was in 2013, when 2012, after President Obama won his re-election, 2013, we had a Democratic governor won. So that broke the trend. That was Terry McCullough. Mm-hmm. This year, this past year, we went right back to the trend that was. Right? So Trump wins in 2016, Ralph Northern Democrat wins in 2017. This time, Joe Biden wins and then Republicans. So there's nothing really surprising to us in terms of that backlash, that higher remorse aspect of it. So that's the local lesson. But for the national lesson is, frankly, you can't win if you don't have a strong message. And Terry McAuliffe is a personal friend. He was a great governor. I, I know him well. And of course, all of us in New Deal think the world of him because he's come to our meetings many times. And he is a, an outstanding public servant and a, and a great leader in, in so many different ways. Unfortunately, in this cycle, his message was just too muddled in a way where it was, it was hard to break through. You know, at first we talked about how horrible Trump is and therefore anybody affiliated with Trump or Republicans are just not good. And then that turned into, well, actually, I was governor and I was a successful governor, so I can repeat all the great work I've done. And then that became, by the way, here are all the other things I want to get done if I have time, because you know, now I'll be, I'll be serving again. And so it just wasn't a clear message, whereas the other side picked up on this national frustration at COVID, the shutdown, the lockdowns with the schools, and this very unfortunate, tragic ways that the, the Republicans and some of the far right have turned our schools into a battlefield. School grounds and, and school board in particular has become a place where all these social agenda issues, you know, from trans bathrooms to, you know, equity to changing the names of federal buildings. And so all those things just kind of rolled into this one massive, there's a problem with schools. And the Republicans turned that into saying, well, the problem with schools is that parents are not involved or they're not allowed to be involved, which is not true. But And so this whole parent first idea and now seeing that in San Francisco, obviously, with the recall that just happened a couple of weeks ago. So I think the idea that they have turned schools and public school system and education issues into something that's a vitriolic issue for them politically, I think it was because of COVID. Obviously, that had a lot to do with it. Uh, but it also had to do with an underlying feeling that not as many parents felt like they had control over what was happening in the school. So I think the national lesson there is you have to explain what is going on all the time, right? I mean, if we are, as public officials, our job is to represent our communities in the government, but we sometimes forget to do the second part, which is to represent the government to the people, right? So I hear from constituents all the time. I'll say, I'll take care of this and make sure I can fix your problems. But I need to also spend more time going to meetings, town halls, going to you know, rotary clubs and all these places and explain to them what the government's doing so that they're not suspicious about what we're doing. So that two-way conversation of, us explaining what's going on, whether it's a school board meeting or a local town meeting, or even at the federal level. And, you know, we, we know this from the last several months of our friends in, in Washington you know, bickering about BBB, right? The Build Back Better. I mean, it's disappointing that the bill never passed, 
but they also spent so much time talking about should it be three trillion, should it be one trillion, should it be this? Nobody actually sat down and said, here's why we need to deliver BBB. This is what's going to be good for you, you know, Mr. Citizen, Mrs. Citizen. This is why we want to pass this bill. So whether it's trillion or five trillion or one trillion, this is what's what it's going to mean for you and your pocketbook. And we unfortunately were not as good at that, I think, in the last few months. And as a result, President Biden's uh, approval rating is not as high as it should be. So I think the lesson there is, as public officials, our job is to constantly explain what we're doing to the people, answering their questions, and simplifying it in a way that they can actually make it make sense for themselves. And you know, as, as we know, all of us have a tendency to talk in either it's in Washington parlance or Richmond parlance or you know whatever state. We tend to talk from a inside baseball type of language. I try really hard to just simplify things and talk as if I'm talking to my neighbor or my neighbor's kids for that matter, and just explain things in a way like, but this is what your government's doing. This is what's happening right now. And if you have questions, please let me know. That's right. That's right. And I, I mean, I just want to underscore, you said, I think there's a lot of good information in there. And I, I'm very worried about kind of this war on parents that it seems like the Republicans would like to have Democrats be Democrats versus parents. And that's just not a good place to be. And I think that you're right to call that out. And I think it's something we've got to pay attention to going into November. I do want to get the chance to talk to you a little bit about your path into public service. This, of course, is called an honorable profession, and that it is for sure. I'm, as you know, I'm so grateful to the folks who stand up and, and do this for a living. It's not an easy time all the time. So your father was a pastor, as I know, and you were born in South Korea. You lived in Vietnam and Australia before you moved to California, and then you went on to college to study political science and then, and then law school. And you already mentioned a little bit of the work you did at the federal level, the Clinton administration and on the Hill. But I guess looking at that, your resume and, and realizing you started in political science and law school, was public service always on your mind or was this a, a different journey? So a couple of things. One is because my father was a pastor and he did a lot of missionary work, which is why we traveled so much when I was a kid. We, we lived in different countries because he set up churches for immigrants in particular. And my mother, unfortunately, never had a formal education growing up in Korea as a woman in the 1950s. Not many opportunities. Yeah, She ended up working in a factory all you know, until she retired. And so neither of my parents really drove us to do something particular. I mean, unlike a lot of immigrants, because they never said, oh, you got to get straight A's and you have to go to Harvard and you have to do all this and you have to become a doctor. Or, none of that. They just said, look, you're in America. That by itself is an amazing opportunity. Something that you know, my parents obviously didn't have when they were young, to have a country that is so giving, so generous in so many different ways with so much opportunities. So we're in America. Do everything you can to be part of this country and do something meaningful in your life, not just for money, not just for status or whatever it is. And so my passion was always serving in government service, public service, serving immigrant communities, translating. And then I you know, eventually became an attorney. But my exposure to politics and national politics happened fairly early. I was in uh, college. As you said, I was a political science major at the University of California, Irvine. And I found out that there's this program called the UCDC program, University of California, Washington, D.C. program. And it's a, a very good internship program. And I just kind of on a whim, I applied for it, not really thinking that I would you know, move to Washington or anything, but I just thought, yeah, I'll give it a try. And I was selected for it. And even though I was a Democrat, I didn't know enough about what it means to be a Democrat versus a Republican. So I said, I just want to try whatever I can gain experience-wise. And my congressman at the time was a very conservative Republican because I live in Orange County. And his office made me an offer. I said, uh, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> I said, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a, not it. <laughs> Yeah. So I said, thanks, but no thanks. And maybe I learned early in life that um, in politics, you kind of have to choose a side. Mm. 
Oh, after I rejected the offer to intern for my Republican congressman, I said, huh, maybe I'll just go the other way completely. So I ended up taking an offer with the Democratic National Committee. <laughs> so I became a DNC intern in 1988. <laughs> and that was my first foray into national politics. I came to Washington, uh, served for a few months here and lived in an apartment in, in Falls Church, Virginia. So I was commuting in, in from Falls Church. And after spending three months, four months uh, going to congressional hearings, meetings, all kinds of receptions, and you know, young kids looking for free food after hours, all that stuff, and networking, and I mean, I had such an amazing experience. Met a lot of uh, really interesting and important people from the you know, senators on down. And then when I left that experience, I was really lucky. I was hired to work at the Democratic Convention in Atlanta, which happened right away. And Michael Dukakis was our nominee. I got to know. Governor Dukakis a little bit through my, my internship. And so I was hired to be a floor staff for, for their convention. So I did that. So during that six or five months or so that I worked in Washington and then in Atlanta, I walked away with two lessons. One is I realized how important government really is, that if you do government right, it can really have a positive impact on people's lives. But if you do government wrong, it can have detrimental impact, not just in the United States, not just for Americans, but across the world. The reason why I came to that realization was when I studied political science in school, reading books and reading history books and learning in a classroom setting, it wasn't that real. You know what I mean? Like I, I read a lot about Vietnam War because I have to live in Vietnam when I was a kid. And my father was actually a, a missionary in Vietnam when we were living there. And we set up a Korean church there. We left Vietnam right before the fall of Saigon. My mother, sister, brother, and I left on the last flight, commercial flight out of Vietnam because we were told... Now, war is happening. It's very reminiscent of what's going on with Ukraine right now. My mm -hmm. father was not that lucky. He thought he had a little bit more time. So he stayed at the church and then ended up after the curtain came down and they couldn't leave. He was arrested and put in a, a camp with other prisoners of war for about a year. And then during that one year, we were back in Korea, not knowing what was going to happen. So eventually, you know, he came out and then, and then we got assigned to a missionary work in Australia, which is how we ended up going there. But the reason I, I give you that little quick background about my personal background is that when I studied Vietnam War and history, I didn't quite understand until I came to Washington, D.C. as an intern, that the reason why my family had to evacuate Vietnam, the reason why our families' lives were just torn apart and all the refugees and all the crises that happens after war, wasn't because of anything that Vietnamese did. It wasn't anything that I did as a family. It was because members of Congress decided in 1974, right after the uh, Watergate, that class of Democrats that came in said, you know what, we're just going to do everything opposite of what Richard Nixon did because Richard Nixon was such a horrible president, such a state in our history, that we're just gonna undo and repeal everything he did. Very reminiscent of what's happening now, right? In terms of administrations coming in. And so one of the things that they stopped was the war that Richard Nixon was funding, which is the Vietnam War. And so even though the Americans in Vietnam were begging and pleading for more money, more assets, more resources for the military, Congress just cut off funding. And as a result, the embassy shut down and we were all told to leave. And then within a couple of days, Vietnam became communist. And I didn't think about how that decision in Congress had a direct impact on my life several thousand miles away and the lives of millions and millions of other people, Americans and non-Americans. And that's just one example of many that you know, we can cite to to say Congress, as well as state and local levels, the decisions that we as policymakers make have real life impact. And we have to always remember that. It's, this isn't an academic thing. This isn't a political thing. This is real people's lives. So one lesson I got from my internship was government matters and people matter, what kind of people matter. Second lesson I got, and this goes back to the earlier part of the conversation was, I moved to America when I was 14, and I had not even become a naturalized citizen at the time I was doing the internship. But the whole time I was in Washington and then in Atlanta for the convention, I didn't see or meet many people that looked like me. 
There were just not that many Asian Americans, especially you know my generation. To the extent that there were Asian faces, it was legendary leaders like Danny Inouye, you know, from Senator from Hawaii, or Norm Mineta, or Bob Matsui, or Patsy Mink. I mean, some of these people that I read about in history books, they were the only ones that I saw that I could recognize somebody that looked, you know, had my hairstyle, my skin tone. I didn't see a single Korean American. I didn't see a single Vietnamese American or any Chinese American in Congress as staffers or as lobbyists or, you know, on TV, no commentators, no reporters, none. And so I thought, hmm, as much as I like this work, I don't know if I belong here. I don't see anybody that looks like me that's doing this work. So I thought, okay, if I ever want to do this kind of work, I need to find people that are like me, that can encourage and open doors for people like me. And I found mentors from people like Jesse Jackson and the Rainbow Coalition, civil rights leaders, icons like John Lewis and others. And I started becoming way more involved in the African-American civil rights movement because I, I saw them as my mentors and my, my role models and my, my people that I felt like I could learn from. And so as part of that movement, I spent the last 30 odd years in that world of progressive politics. And, and I'll wrap this up this way. In 1988, it was what, 35 years ago, I guess it was, 34 years ago. When I learned those two lessons, one, that government matters and who works in government really matters. And then number two, that in order for us to have people that look like me or look like anybody else for that matter, you need role models. I think I pretty much spent my last 30 odd years doing those two things, pursuing, making the government work the best it can, making sure good people are in government to do the good work that you know, helps people's lives and making sure that there are people of various backgrounds and different diverse experiences and lived experiences in those government roles whether it's elected or appointed or staff or volunteers or lobbyists, anybody, so that the entire public affairs policymaking world reflects all of America. And so that's pretty much what I've been focusing on my whole career. And somewhere along the way, I ended up serving in public office. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, and I just, it, you're so right about representation, right? I mean, I think that was such a, with Kamala Harris being elected vice president, we saw the emotional and powerful reaction to, a, you know, a woman in the White House for the first time, as your earlier point you know, an African-American person and a woman in the White House. And I really think that's a great, as you said, we kind of came full circle where we started and where we're ending. But thank you for your service, really, Mark. It's not easy to be an elected official, particularly right now with so many challenges we're facing and, and some of the divisions we have in our country. But talking to you and talking to other, your other colleagues around the country gives me so much hope every week just to hear, you know, that. I, and I know that you're out there thinking every day about how to make someone's life better to hear it in your own words is really special. So thank you so much for joining us on An Honorable Profession. Well, thank you so much, Debbie, for all you do and for your leadership and bringing us together. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.